Very nice. Thank you. I called uh, Roger Breland one night when I was headed home, and uh, he said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I, I've been listening to some old truth stuff, and, you know, that was good music. I, said, I don't know why that idiot broke that group up, but, uh, you know, that, that was great music. And I said, I've just been sitting here missing it and wondering who was going to do it, and then Highest Call comes and does Highest Call tonight. So thank you all for, for doing that. There's some great, great songs that have come over the years, and that's one of my favorite ones. Living for Jesus no matter the price. Boy, I tell you what, in a, in a culture that wants to find the easy road, we need to remember that in the gospel there's no easy road. That the road is narrow, the road is hard, but God equips us to walk down it and to do what he's called us to do. I want to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And I want to talk about standing against legalism and for truth. Standing against legalism and for truth. The first monumental meeting in American history would have been the Continental Congress of 1776. As a result of that meeting, we have what we know as the Declaration of Independence. The first monumental church conference in the book of Acts happened about 49 AD. It was a conference to deal with the issue of how are we saved. Heresy had begun to slip in and error had begun to slip in. And as a result of that meeting, we have a declaration of our absolute dependence on God for salvation. That there is nothing we can do to add to or to merit salvation. It is all of grace. You and I did not do God a favor when we came to Christ. God did us a favor when he died for us. You and I didn't bring anything to God that he had to have. God gave to us everything we needed. And when we came to Christ, we came by grace through faith alone. Nothing added. The church was exploding with growth by this time that we get in Acts chapter 15. And Paul was reaching pagans. Not a lot of churches reaching pagans today. We can swap members between churches, but that's not church growth. I've never been one that has been content nor desired to build a church by getting other people from other churches to come to this church. True church growth comes by reaching the lost community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are churches that proselyte and steal members and entice members to come in every way that they can. That's not church growth. That's sheep stealing. Church growth comes by the church going out and bringing people in. Now, God always leads people to other churches, and you understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I have never intentionally, in all the years that I've been in ministry, I have never gone after anybody that was a member of another church and said, you need to be in our church instead of that church. Because I figure the Holy Spirit's strong enough to do that. If they need to be here, God will lead them here. And I don't have to convince them because if I talk somebody into joining, somebody else will talk them out of, out of joining and talk them into leaving. So it's best to leave that work to God. Paul is reaching pagans. These pagans cared nothing about the Jewish tradition. They cared everything about Jesus who had changed and transformed their lives. But there were these religious people that didn't consider these Gentiles good enough. They needed to be circumcised. They were unclean. Their culture, their theater, their sports, their fashion, their music, everything was off limits. And these Pharisees that had been converted began to cause a stir. Now this barrier had already been broken. Philip had broken it with the eunuch, and Peter had broken it when he witnessed to Cornelius. But the battle was still raging and brewing underneath the surface with people trying to say, 
yeah, but it's, it's grace plus something else. And, and for these folks, it was circumcision. Now, Acts chapter 15 is a record, as best we can tell, not of one meeting, but of a series of meetings that probably happened over a series of weeks and possibly months. Meetings among the leadership of the church, the apostles and the elders, trying to deal with this possible schism and this error and trying to come to the point of truth. And and so it's a record that is condensed for us into one chapter. The bottom line is there's a false gospel being promoted. And, And we have to be careful because in every age, there is a false gospel being promoted. I think we understand that, don't we? There are false gospels out there. They may use our language, they may use our terminology, but they don't use the same dictionary we use. And so this false gospel is being brought into the church, and you see, we need to be careful what we bring to faith, because we can bring baggage from our past, even from past church experiences where we were in a church before we got saved. We can bring baggage from our past that will ultimately begin to corrupt and destroy the faith. Here's what we know. Anything that you add to the gospel ultimately takes away from the gospel. You can't add anything to the gospel. When you add to it, you take away from it. Howard Hendricks said this. I love this quote. In fact, this quote was made in 1982. I repudiated legalism intellectually and theologically in 1946, but in 1982, I am still wrestling with it emotionally. I think we can all identify with that because it's very easy for us to get caught in a trap of what I do and what I don't do and what you do and what you don't do and, and sin is what you do that I don't do and, and, and I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do and you know we, we get our own little list of the nasty nine and the filthy five and the dirty dozen and, and, and we you know do you remember some of you remember when, when for women to wear nail polish was I mean you just didn't do that some churches say you know if a woman wears makeup you know, that, she's not supposed to wear makeup. Now, where'd they find that in the Bible? You know, when people do that kind of stuff to me, I say chapter and verse. Just give me chapter and verse. And they can't. Well, I've always believed that. Well, you believed a lot of things that you found out were wrong. There was a day when we believed the earth was flat until we read the Bible. Then we found out we were wrong. You see, we cannot add things to faith. And so there's a legalistic challenge that is placed here. And I think there's a quote by Lloyd Ogilvie in your notes. But I I want you to just see this sentence in there. These converted Pharisees and their followers were not bad people. Their problem was that they stood with one foot in Moses' law and one foot in Christ's love. And now the ground was separating beneath them. You can't have it both ways. You can't straddle these two things. And so in Acts 15, in verse 1, he says, Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. These people were known as Judaizers. They were following Paul around. They were trying to undermine and contradict his message. And and for them, it was circumcision, but circumcision wasn't even the real issue with them. When you get to the bottom of of it, their problem was we were raised to believe that this is what you had to do, and they couldn't get over it. They believed that God was good enough to save them, but they couldn't get over the fact that God could save somebody that wasn't circumcised. And so they wanted somebody to become a Jew first and then become a Christian. And Paul said, that's not the gospel. 
It's not that we keep the commandments to be saved. We don't first become Jews and then we become Christians. We become Christians, and at the core, this is a challenge to the gospel of grace. At its very core, they were teaching salvation by grace plus something. This kind of thinking is still among us. I remember uh, having a discussion with a gentleman in a prominent denomination in America that believes you have to be baptized to be saved. The funny thing was, he was arguing with me that I wasn't saved because I didn't believe that baptism was a part of salvation, and he was drunk while he was arguing with me. And I thought that incredibly ironic. I mean, he was reeking, and he was stumbling, but he was convinced that because he had been baptized, he'd been saved. I wanted to say, were you baptized in Jack Daniels by Jack Daniels? Baptism doesn't save you. You can be baptized in every river and creek until every fish and minnow knows your name, but that doesn't save you. It just means you got a lot of baths. Some people think that you have to be confirmed by their church to be saved or that there's only one true church. Some people think you have to be Southern Baptist to be saved. God forbid there's a lot of Southern Baptists going to be in hell. We can't find about six million of them. I don't know why they think they're going to get to heaven. I mean, God can't find them. The FBI can't find them. Their church can't find them. Nobody can find them. You know, you got to be a member of this church to be saved. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that. Some people think that you have to do enough good works to be saved. Well, how many is enough? I remember after I got saved, I was sharing my faith with somebody, and they say, well, you know, I just believe, and you've heard this, I just believe that God's got a big set of And in that scales are your good works and your bad works. And when you get up there, if the good outweighs the bad, then you're going to get in heaven. I said, how are you going to know before you get there? What if you just knocked on one more door? What if you just carried one more loaf of bread to a widow? What if if you just done one more thing and and, and you missed it because you didn't do one thing one day? You, You stayed on the couch and watched a football game. You went to hell because of that. That'd be a sorry way to live, wouldn't it? wondering, have I done enough good works to outweigh my bad? By the way, how do you know what's bad and how do you know what's good if you don't read the Bible? The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one, that all our righteousness and all our works are filthy rags in the eyes of God. So how do you know that you're doing anything good enough to get to God anyway? That'll confuse you. Then there's some people who think if you join our denomination or if you have this gift or if you do this thing, listen, there's a Greek word for all that. It's hogwash. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says that. You know, the Bible sheds a lot of light on people's theology. If they just read the Bible, they'd come up with the ideas that most of their ideas are bad. The gospel is very clear. How we are saved is very clear in the Word of God. And this is a denial. What these Judaizers are teaching is a denial of whosoever will. You and I know people that spend their whole lives trying to earn God's favor, trying to live up to God's standards in their flesh, trying to justify some preconceived ideas. And by the way, we are all inclined to turn our preferences and our opinions into rules for everybody else. That's just the way we are. If this works for me, everybody ought to do it. You know, I, I, can remember, <laughs> I can remember people saying to me, if you don't have your quiet time in the morning, it's not a quiet time. Well, what do you do about people that work shift work? That's the end of their day if they have it in the morning. I, I don't know. Let me just ask you. Do you think God will forgive you if you have your quiet time at 3.30 in the afternoon? What do you think? You think it matters to him? You think God, you think the God of eternity who is not bound by time is sitting up there going, oh, they missed it. We're going to count that one against them. I don't care if they read 12 chapters today. That's not going to be enough to satisfy me. They didn't, they had coffee before they had the Bible and that is not acceptable. Well, you got to witness my way. 
And we all witness different ways. You've you got to use my method. You've got to use my translation. You've got to go by the traditions of my church. L- listen, write this down. Principles are universal, but practices are not. The principles of God's Word are universal, but I want to tell you, if you try to take American Christianity and go live it in, in the Far East, it, it's because it's a different culture. You know, you might show up to church with a coat and tie on and find out they don't wear a coat and tie. You think, well, they're not dressed in their Sunday best. They may be. You don't know. Maybe all they have. And it's dangerous for us to take our preferences and try to make them rules for everybody else. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time in your Christianity when it was more cultural than Christian? I mean, it was just American sanitized Christianity. And it was a whole lot more identifiable with the culture in which we live than with Christ. And we expected someone to live up to our way that we were raised. You, you know, there's just some things about Southern culture that if, if you go up north, they, they just think we're weird. And there are some things about Northern culture, if we go up there, you know, we think they're weird. I can remember when we moved to Kansas City to go to seminary. I don't know why God sent me to Kansas City to go to seminary and live in the snow, but I can remember when we moved there and I went in the grocery store and with my Mississippi accent, I said, uh, y'all got any grits? <laughs> and this self-righteous little 15-year-old girl working the cash register said, you're not from here, are you? No. You got any grits? I had a friend of mine who uh, was a Marine, and he happened to be a bus driver, and, and he would take the guys on the buses when they'd go to various places when they were in North Carolina, and, and he would pass peach orchards. You're going to love this, especially those, those of us from the South are going to appreciate this. He would pass peach orchards, and he'd get on the microphone on the bus and say, we are now passing grit orchards. Those are grit trees. Migrant workers come in and pick those grits and roll them down a trough, and they bag them up, and we sell grits down here. You might want to write your mama up in Brooklyn and tell her you saw a grit tree. And, I mean, these guys were getting letters back. Send us a picture of those grit trees. We've never seen grit trees before. You see, any thinking that says, you've got to do it my way and be like me can be a hindrance to the gospel. And that's what the Judaizers are doing. Look at, look at the conference that they hold to confront it. This conference was crucial because it's establishing the nature of salvation. It would determine the future of the church. So Paul goes to Jerusalem to confront the problem. This, this meeting would be known as the Jerusalem Council. And these Judaizers have been following Paul around, bugging the stew out of him. And, and so Paul has no longer emphasizes evangelism. He's fighting these Judaizers. He says, we've got to deal with this. We, we've got to put a stop to this. Church growth was at stake. Church health was at stake. The church could not ignore this problem any longer. And so Paul goes to address the issue. By the way, when issues come up that threaten the gospel of Jesus Christ and they are not addressed and we think by ignoring them they will go away, we are sadly mistaken and satanically deceived. We cannot ignore issues that threaten the essence of the nature of the gospel. Because when they slip in, it begins to water down. And the effect may not be immediate, but it will be on the way. And so Satan's trying to slow down and stop the ministry and and get the church to fight and split. So look, the opposition speaks in verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them. And tell them to keep the law of Moses. Peter stands up and rejects it in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
What's Peter doing? Peter's saying, God's Word is very clear. It has already been revealed. I've already crossed that bridge. Cornelius was saved and his household. Many have believed. We've already taken the gospel to the Gentiles, and not one time have we told them they've got to be circumcised. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. There's nothing to vote on. What, what Peter's saying, there's nothing to vote on here. God's already spoken. God has already revealed himself. God's already decided how salvation is going to come to people's lives. We're not going to debate this issue. He said, it's already been revealed. You know that God made that choice. And God used me to cross that bridge. Now, Peter had come a long way. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. That was not the way Peter was in those early days right after the time with Cornelius. And, I mean, Peter kind of was wishy-washy. He, he was like a lot of Christians. He's one way with one group and another way with another group. And he, he kind of played both sides and tried to straddle the fence, and it wasn't working for him. And Paul rebuked him. Now, I, I want you to notice something about Paul. When Paul was beaten... And when Paul was stoned, and when Paul was ridiculed, he rarely responded. But when the nature and the future of the gospel was at stake, Paul dug his heels in, and he got himself in a fit. Because Paul knew it doesn't matter what happens to me. But the future of the gospel, I'm not going to be quiet and stand and take this. And so Paul, in Galatians, realizing that these are new Christians, and Paul, knowing from this background that he had of, of being a Jew of Jews, and all of this training, and all of this legalism, and all of this pharisaical teaching that he had had, and then he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Paul says, there is no way I'm going to let anybody put these new believers in the bondage of legalism. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have it. I don't care who starts it. I don't care where they start it. I'm going to stop it. And so in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul tells a story. You notice Peter didn't write this story. Paul did. Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, James being the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Remember what Scripture says? The fear of man is a snare. And so Peter begins to back up. He's sitting there. He's saying, man, you know, pass the fried chicken. Give me some bacon. Let's get some country ham. Oh, let's have a great time. Hey, the people from the church in Jerusalem are coming. Whoa, how about some of that kosher food? Let me back up here a little bit. And all of a sudden, people he's sitting down at the table with and people he's fellowshipping with, he won't talk to because he's got a fear of those Pharisees. Verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. Notice how Paul, Paul doesn't say this is just a mistake. He says it's hypocrisy. Don't ever call something less than what God calls it. God inspired Paul to write these words and he says, when you don't do what God says and you try to pretend that you are, that's hypocrisy. And he says... The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, now remember Barnabas was the one that defended Paul to the church. Barnabas is the one that stood by Paul. He says this was so bad that even Barnabas was carried away by their, what? Hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, and you ought to underline that because that is a key phrase, to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Don't mix words. Don't water it down. Your job is not to try to get people saved. Your job is to share the truth of the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin and to bring them to salvation. You're merely the instrument that he uses to communicate that. 
Okay? Don't try to talk somebody into salvation. And that's what we do. And somebody says, well, I don't know if I want to. Well, you know, I'll tell you what. If you come to our church, you'll only have to obey eight of the Ten Commandments. Our tithe is 6%. You won't have to come to church on Sunday nights. Uh, you won't have to pray. You won't have to go to, you won't have to do anything. If you'll just come and put your name on our roll, and Lord knows we've got a lot of people that have joined churches that way. And they think they're saved. And Paul says, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. Now go back to verse 12. I opposed him to his face. Now Paul is nose to nose, eyeball to eyeball with Cephas, that's Simon Peter. And now he says, I opposed him and I said to him in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Why you got this double standard? Why are you trying to play both sides of the fence? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So Paul comes in and he straightens out Barnabas and Peter and the whole group. He says, now I'm, going to, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen here, and, and this is what we're going to do, and I'm not going to argue with you about it. You see, apparently the opposition had found a favorable ear with Peter and with Barnabas. And they were backing up. You, I, I just kind of use my sanctified imagination in times like this. And, you know, I, I, can just, I can just see some of those people that were backing up and trying to please these people who were coming from Jerusalem. I can see them saying, well, you know, I almost said something. I, I started to say something. You know, folks, you never deal with error by almost saying something. You deal with error by speaking the truth. You don't have to be mean about it, but you better be straight about it. And so Paul deals with it and because their, their opinions and their feelings and their past are overriding truth. And they're acting on their feelings and their opinions. And, and Paul says, here's Peter straddling the fence. He's getting along with the Gentiles. He's fellowshipping with them until these men from James come, and he starts vacillating. Now understand this. When a Christian begins to vacillate, he confuses new believers. When we are not firm about what we believe and how we believe and how we live, when we're up and down and hot and cold and maybe one way this day and the next day we're something else, we confuse new believers because they're looking at us as examples of how they're supposed to live. And so when they see our lives and, and they're looking to us for guidance and we don't give it to them, we take them on all kind of detours, no wonder they get confused about the Christian life. And Paul says in Galatians 2.13, even Barnabas was wavering for a while. He was acting like a hypocrite. And the gospel was at stake. And so this had such an impact. Now listen, this is why confrontation in truth with love is so important. This face-to-face -face confrontation. Now, you've got to remember, Simon Peter was with Jesus for three years. Paul was a latecomer. Paul had been converted in Acts chapter 9 sometime after Pentecost. Peter had been the predominant figure. By the time you get to Acts chapter 15, Peter's star is going down and Paul's star is ascending. It is obvious that Paul is going to be the central figure in the early church movement. And Peter will be written about less and less as the book of Acts comes along. Here's a man who had a massive ego and a high D personality and a type A person. He was willing to cut off ears. He was willing to brag about what he'd do. He had walked on water. After all, Paul had not walked on water. He had been there for all the miracles of Jesus. 
But Paul comes and confronts Peter face-to-face, nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball, gets all over him, jumps down his throat, and it makes such an impression on Peter that when he comes to Acts chapter 15, he doesn't buckle his knees one time. He realizes, I was wrong to back up there, and I will never back up again if given the opportunity to take a stand. That's how strong this meeting was in Galatians. And so Paul comes to him and he confronts him and Peter with his seasoned judgment and walking through this experience, he comes in in verse 10 of Acts chapter 15. Go back there if you will. Acts 15 in verse 10. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? <laughs> wow. They're not putting these new believers to the test. They're putting God to the test. And how are they doing it? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. You know what legalism does? You know what hypocrisy does? It makes people try to live up to rules that they can't live up to and the people laying down the rules can't live up to. It's an impossible standard. Why was the law given? To show us that we needed grace to be saved. The law was not given so that we would be saved. The law was given to us to show us we were hopeless sinners in need of grace because we were lawbreakers. And if you break one, you break them all. And so Peter says, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. God had stripped away all of Peter's prejudice. The law was a burden. No one ever came to God by keeping the law. And he says all the law has revealed to us is that we need grace because we can't purify ourselves, we can't save ourselves. I don't know about you tonight, but I'm glad I don't have to keep the law to be saved. I'm glad I don't have to keep it to be saved, and I'm glad I don't have to keep it to stay saved. Because sometime during this week, I'll break one of the laws. You just will. Say, not me, not this week, I hadn't broken one. You, You ever seen anything anybody had that you wanted? That's coveting. You broke the law. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 7, 20 says, That which proceeds out of the man, that, which is, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You know this. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's not about how we clean up externally. It's about what God does in us internally that eventually shows itself up externally. Thirdly, the leadership of the church confronts the legalism. The legal leadership of the church confronts legalism. I read about a, a church that is, uh, has two families in it, and both the families want to be in control of the church. And they had a pretty significant issue that came up not long ago, and One family voted on one side of the issue, and another family voted on the other side of the issue. And one of the families that voted against it came to the pastor and said, you know, we were really for the issue, but when that other family voted for it, we had to vote against it to keep our principles. There's a Greek word for that. They're idiots. But you know, there are a lot of family-run churches. Ma and Paul Kettle fighting against somebody else, and Uncle Bubba and Aunt Bessie, they're going to run the church. They were there before any preacher ever came. They'll be there when every preacher's gone. Now, they're not going to get to heaven, I can tell you that. Jesus said, by their fruits you'll know them, and their fruit is 
turmoil. We've got people in this church that have come here because they're tired of being in churches that fight and fuss and fume. Right? I mean, who wants to work in this world all week long and then go to a business meeting where people act like the devil? Where in the Bible did we get that? You know, who wants to go, to go to work and have to deal with all kinds of issues and all kinds of stuff and the pressure of life and then come to church and spend an hour in a business meeting about things that don't matter in light of eternity? Well, we need to make sure, you know, that we got the right kind of lawnmowers, really. You think it'll survive if we don't discuss that? You think somebody will figure out how to get a lawnmower and cut the grass? I think so. And the leadership said, this is what we're going to do, and, this, and I want you to look at it because, uh, you know, people don't like this when you say this, and I understand it. We live in America, and I understand people don't like it, but the church is not a democracy. Anybody that tells you the church is a democracy has not read the Bible. Church is not a democracy. The majority can be wrong. The majority of Americans didn't think we'd put a man on the moon. We put so many up there, we can't name the last five that were there. The majority are always going to be wrong in America. I mean, they voted in one guy for eight years in the 90s. Just a thought. Of course, I don't know how you can vote for a guy that doesn't know the definition of is. It's just another thought. When the decision had to be made, if you read Acts chapter 15, the church trusted the leadership to make the right decision. And James, not Peter, not Paul, but James... The pastor of the church becomes the central figure in this chapter. Once this discussion has been carried on and all the evidence has been put in, James realizes what needs to be done and he makes a decision. Verse 11, all the people kept silent. That's why I know the first church wasn't a Baptist church. All the people kept silent. And first Peter said, this is not a theological argument. In reality, you're putting God to a test. And then Paul and Barnabas speak in verse 12. They're confirming the words of Peter by by showing the church that what God's doing is saving men and women. They shared their testimony. You see, I'm convinced there's little time for animosity and murmuring if you're going with the flow of what God's doing. But if you're not going with the flow of what God's doing, then every man does what's right in his own eyes, and there's no king in Israel. And then if you would, look look at James. God is showing James where he's been wrong as the pastor. Peter has spoken. Paul has spoken. Now James comes to a decision. And look at verse 13. Brethren, listen to me. Now they've been listening to Peter and Paul. Now the pastor of the church, James, speaks. Verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Show me a group of men. Show me a leader. Show me a church that cares about nothing but the truth and walking in the fullness of the Spirit, and I will show you a church where the Spirit's got freedom to work. I did a deacon's retreat this uh, weekend for a a church in Alabama, and about 36 uh, deacons and their wives and their pastor, and I said to them, I said, gentlemen, your pastor's been in your church for three years, but I'm going to tell you, if he's a man of God, if he has integrity, If he believes the word of God without apology, you better follow what he tells you to do. And you better not buck it. Because you'll answer to God for it. I said, that's not because he's always right. That's not because he's perfect. That's because his position is under the authority of God to be the authority in that church. Anything with two heads is a freak show. 
And the church has one head, and that's Jesus Christ, but he has placed over every church bishops, elders, pastor teachers to lead and direct those churches. I want to tell you why churches in southwest Georgia have problems. Because they won't let the pastor be the pastor. They want him to be a hireling. If he doesn't come do this, we're going to get rid of him. Charles Stanley said, any church that has three pastors in a row that have had to leave because of issues, the problem's not the pastor. The problem's the church. And we got a lot of churches that need to be purified because they won't let a pastor lead. They won't let a pastor preach the Word. And pastors, I'm telling you, there are pastors all over that, that preach worrying about what people are going to think about them. And pastors need to be men with gumption and with guts enough to stand up and say, this is what God says. If you don't like it, you can find another place to go. But we're not going to back up on what the Word of God says just to make you be comfortable. I'm not going to back up on what the Word of God says to make me feel comfortable. I wish God would lower the standards and give me a break sometimes. But he's not going to, and he's not going to for you. And I would violate my calling, and I would be justified in walking away if I'm not going to stand up for what the Word of God says. When that church laid hands on me, they told me to preach the Word without apology. When I was called by God, God didn't say, Michael Cat, you do what you feel like doing. He said, you better do what I say in my word if you want my hand on your ministry. When Vance Havner put his hands on me in that apartment complex and asked that a portion of his mantle would fall on me, I would violate everything he invested in me for 15 years if I didn't stay true to that. I would violate everything that Ron Dunn poured into my life. I would violate everything that I know to be right if I did it just so we could keep people happy. And almost every week, I hear somebody who's going to leave and go somewhere, and you know where they go? They go to churches that never tell them the truth, where they can be self-satisfied, where they can be comfortable, where it will be easy, where nobody will step on their toes, where they get out at 12 o'clock dull, and they're lifeless. Folks, I'd rather us shut the doors than be that kind of church. I certainly want to, wouldn't want to raise my kids in that kind of a church. Because what, remember? What one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. And you water down the gospel for your children, and they'll rebel against it when they get old enough. Because you haven't given them anything worth living for. And James says, you listen to me. This is what we're going to do. And he stands up and says, this is right. And this is the way we're going to do it. You know, I find it funny. I, I really do find it funny. And I'm, I'm talking to the choir. I know I'm, ta- I'm talking to the choir. <laughs> but I'm talking to the choir out here too. Okay, is that okay? I, I'm talking to the choir. But I find it funny that with terrorism, we want the military and the president to deal with it decisively. But with sin in the church, we want the pastor to tiptoe around it. And sin in the church can do as much damage in the body of Christ as terrorism can do to the country. You know, we, we want strong leaders in industry. We, we, we want a guy to tell us the truth of it. You know, we, when we go to our investment counselor, we want him to tell us what our investments are doing. We don't want to say, man, you know what? You're going to be retired at, at 26 and you're only putting $5 a month in. It's not true, it's not real. But we come to the church and we want the preacher to just make us feel good. You know, we want to kind of float on pillows of ease. We want to be comfortable. I'm not saying the church has to be mean. I'm not saying the preacher has to be mean. I'm not saying we have to be ugly. I'm saying we have to speak the truth. And sometimes, folks, the truth hurts. When the doctor says you need surgery, that means it's going to hurt. Well, what's the alternative? You're going to die. 
Okay, I appreciate the truth. Let's go for hurt. Don't you want your doctor to be honest with you? Or do you want them to just read the x-ray and say, there's nothing there. Don't worry about it. What's that big blob? Oh, don't worry about it. It's probably some bubble gum that you swallowed or something. I mean, if I get on a plane in Albany, Georgia, I don't want the pilot to say, you know, I really don't know where we're going today. And actually, it's the first time I've ever flown a plane. But I want you to know, I'm a nice guy. I want a dogmatic pilot who knows how to fly that plane and I want him to know that he's supposed to go to Atlanta and I wish he would bypass Atlanta and go somewhere else so I wouldn't have to go through Atlanta. But you know, I want a dogmatic pilot. I want a dogmatic doctor. And by the way, if I were sitting in a pew, I'd want a dogmatic preacher. Because I don't want somebody to tell me something and me believe it and then stand before God and find out he lied to me. And I loved him, but he lied to me. Folks, I want to tell you something. I'm not going to preach people into heaven that aren't going. I'm not going to water down the gospel that it's through Jesus and only through Jesus, and that's it, bottom line, end of discussion, no debate. I'm not going to back up from the fact that the Bible is the inerrant and fallible word of God. End of discussion. I'm not going to back up from the fact that the Holy Spirit can empower us to live in any way that we need to live according to His Word. I'm not going to back up from the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come again, and if you're not ready, that you're going to go through the tribulation. And those who love the Lord are going to be caught up to be with Him. I'm not going to back up from that. I'm not going to back up from the fact that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. If God's Word says it, I believe it. I even believe the maps. I'm pretty sure genuine leather is inspired on the back. Hardback is even inspired. Why? Because I would violate everything Paul and Peter gave to us. When they wrote down these truths in God's Word for us, I would violate everything given to us since the first days of the church if I did that just to get a crowd. Now listen, there's a difference between a crowd and a congregation. There's a difference between a lot of folks and a church. And we need to know the difference. And so what does James do? James writes a letter. He writes a letter to all these people that are just saying yeah 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 you know I don't know if he'd had email I'm sure it had been copied and forwarded to people that didn't need it but he wrote a letter and in the letter he says two things basically he says don't offend each other and show respect and love for one another now he gives him talks about not eating meat offered to idols and all that but but basically James writes this letter with instructions and he says don't offend one another and show respect and love for one another Now, James is not adding legalism. He's saying that we are to have mutual love and respect for one another in the truth. You can love somebody and violate the truth and not that not be real love. He's saying we're to have mutual love in the truth. We're to be holy and honoring the law and respecting other people's stuff, whatever, is not the means of salvation. It's not how you get saved. You see, the way I treat people doesn't save me, but it gives evidence that I'm saved. Giving doesn't save me, but it gives evidence that I'm trusting God with my resources. Being faithful to church doesn't save me, but because I'm saved, I love being with one another. The one and others. I like being with you. I want to be with you. I like hanging out. The, the, the best thing we built in this building was the atrium. Man, I love those little three-year-old rugrats just going boom through the atrium. And I know some people go, 
that children ought not to run in church. At least they're running in church. Their parents could be letting them run at putt-putt. At least they've got them in church. We'll teach them one day, don't run, but let them be three. You were. Don't expect three-year-olds to act like 30-year-olds, but 30-year-olds should act like 30-year-olds. So James writes this letter. He's dealing with legalism, but he's also acting as a leader. The hardest thing about staying in a church for 14 years is when you have to make as many tough calls as I've had to make, you start getting labeled. You get labeled by people in the community. You get people labeled by people who get mad at you. You get people labeled by people who leave. You get labeled by people who watch you on television and think they know you. You get labeled by all kind of things. That, that's the hardest thing about it. You know, I, you know I've, I've owned an airplane. I've had a helicopter. Uh, I make $500,000 a year. By the way, if y'all want to vote on that tonight, I'll be glad for you to do that. Uh, you know, I'm a dictator. Uh, I mean, I, you know, the, the list is legion. I don't have enough paper to write the list of what I've done, or at least what I've been accused of doing. But I want to tell you something, folks. I've made some tough calls, but the tough calls I make... I never make until I look at the Word of God and see if I'm violating any principle of Scripture when I do it. And to the best of my knowledge and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I say, Lord, this one's going to be tough, and I'm going to get some scars for this one, but I'd rather do the right thing and take some hits than do the wrong thing and jeopardize the future of the church. Folks, leadership is lonely. It's a lonely, lonely place to be. Because you can never explain yourself. The thing I love about the church in Acts is James said, listen to me, let's do this. And it seemed good to them. That's when you know a church is moving in the right direction. When the leadership of the church, now remember this is Peter and Paul, James and the apostles. The elders have been having these meetings. They've been talking about what needs to happen. But James stands up as the spokesman. Now, James did not act independently and on his own. He was not a lone ranger. He's been talking. Remember, this is a series of meetings over months, and he's been talking to Peter and Paul. He's been talking to the other apostles that are not named and to the elders who are not named. And obviously, there's a structure in the church by this time. And in this conversation, he listens to it all, and everybody's kind of sitting there, and James finally says, this is what we're going to do, and this is the way we're going to do it. And it says it seemed good to the church. But did you notice what else? And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the church had one message. Not two messages, not three, not five, not ten. The church had one message. And it is important for us that we never forget that the message of the church is more important than our opinions or our feelings. That the message of the gospel is right, even if the world thinks we ought to water it down to make it more acceptable. And in this postmodern, post Christian culture in which we live, there will be more and more and more emphasis on many ways to God. There will be meetings that once had prayers only to the Lord Jesus that will now have Hindu prayers and Muslim prayers. And we will have to say, that's wrong. There's only one God. Well, that's not politically correct. Well, can I just tell you, I really don't care about being politically correct. Because most people who are politically correct are theologically wacko. 
I'm not interested in being politically correct. I'm interested in being biblically correct. And if I'm incorrect on Scripture, I need to know it. But if we're correct on Scripture, let's move forward. Let's do the God thing. And let's do the right thing. Faith without works is dead. And just to make a statement and to say, oh, that's good for us and that's good to the Holy Spirit, and then not act on it, is to never have made the statement. And so they leave the church at Jerusalem, they leave the Jerusalem council, and they go out and the gospel continues to spread. And when you read the rest of this chapter, you find that these people got encouraged and they rejoiced in the Lord. Why? Because the issue of how a man is saved was settled. I'm grateful that God left chapter 15 in the Bible. Because it tells me what I'm supposed to do. It reminds me of what salvation is. And it doesn't give me any room to adjust it to my opinion. And if we ever become a church that adjusts the message of salvation to our opinions or to please people or just to get numbers, God will take his hand off this church. We're not required to be successful, folks. We're called to be faithful. He is the Lord of the harvest. We share the gospel with whosoever will. We share the gospel in the highways and hedges, but it is God who brings the lost to Christ. I'm just supposed to share. I'm just supposed to be faithful. And then I let God do the work of conviction and regeneration in bringing people to Christ. I love the story of D.O. Moody. D.O. Moody was, I think it was D.O. Moody, was walking down the street one day and ran across a, a drunkard and one of the men walking with him said, Dr. Uh, Mr. Moody, it wasn't Dr. Moody, he said, Mr. Moody, he said, that's one of your converts. He said, well, it must be one of mine. It's sure not one of God's. Let's pray. I want to ask you tonight, with the little dripping of heresy and error that has entered into our culture in the last 25 years, have you begun to water down the gospel? Have you begun to try to make it an easy believism? Have you begun to try to say, well, you know, if you're a member of a church, that's good enough. If you've done this, that's good. If you have good works, that's good enough. Or are you still preaching the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You see, folks, God doesn't need our help. He just needs our availability. He needs our obedience. He doesn't need us to add to it. He needs to just proclaim it without apology. And he just doesn't need pastors and, and deacons and apostles and elders that, that stand for the truth. He needs the people to say, it sounds good to us that that's the way it is. That's what we'll do. Because if it's just the preacher, not a whole lot's going to get done. Jim talked a few moments ago about Mark being in church, had 100 people there and had 15 people pray to receive Christ this morning. You know, if we were faithful to do what we say we believe, we would have had 15 people pray to receive Christ this morning. Because we know a 1,000 people we could have invited. we've got to get beyond well I'm glad I'm saved I'm glad I know that it's by grace through faith and start saying to the lost world it's by grace through faith see the gospel is only good news if you share it it's, got, it's not good news if you keep it under a basket under a lid it's, we're to be salt and light salt doesn't stay in the container light doesn't stay under a bushel we, we share the good news of what God has done for us. And when I share, I leave the results to God. 
If their hearts are ready, I guarantee you they'll ask questions. But I am to plant seeds wherever I go. And he's the Lord of the harvest. I want us to stand quietly. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. We're going to sing two verses of I Surrender All. The choir's going to sing. The praise team's going to sing. And in these two verses...